This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Fagan, I'm Fagan, and joining me today on Bookmark is Azura Rahman. Welcome back to the show. Shall I say bonjour in this case? You can, because we're obviously <laughs> taking a look at Peter Mayle and his work, in particular, his final work, actually. It's called My 25 Years in Provence, Reflections on Then and Now. Peter Mayle, of course, the famous travel writer, but he's also written quite a bit of fiction as well. He passed away on January 18th of 2018, uh, earlier this year. He was 78 years old and a short bout of illness and then passed away. I'm sorry, Azura, to get you in for obituary pieces, <laughs> but it just so happens we both seem to love the same sort of travel writing. Let's think of it as a retrospective as opposed to an obit piece, right? Correct, mm. correct. I mean, so the final book um, is also from Provence and it takes the form of this delightfully quaint anecdotal notes from the years since Mail and Jenny, his wife, actually ditched London and New York and made their way to Provence for a kind of quieter, charming life. And um, what a life it was, wasn't it? It was an enviable one. I think it was... He was really writing for the Provence tourism department in some ways, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> um, why, that's why that's why France made him a legionnaire. Yes, uh, he was awarded the Legion d'honneur, which is like the highest amount of um, um, honorifics that you could get for um, a foreigner in in France for his work, basically um, showcasing the best that Provence has to offer. And um, his time spent in Provence, um, I think he was mostly known for living in Manera, but he moved on to, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lumarin later on. Has brought a lot of travellers from the region, from uh, England um, um, especially, to see what life is like in Provence. He wrote it as a simpler, sunnier life. And I think that's exactly the life he lived. What was particularly interesting about Mail was that he explored the world differently and encouraged people, especially Brits, to do the same thing. I mean, he writes in his book that whenever Brits would travel to the continent, they would drive with cars full of tea and biscuits, right? It's like they would take England with them wherever they went. And I think he was one of the earliest writers to actively encourage the British people to say, hey, experience the country you're going to in its original form, right? Eat some French food, for God's sake. You know, when you mentioned that tea and biscuits thing, it can easily apply to any Malaysian who travel abroad. Lingam chili sauce. Lingam chili sauce, with their Maggi Me in their suitcases. Milo 3-in-1. I mean, do not be ashamed about it. But, you know, he was basically promoting the opposite of that, which is literally to get under the skin of the country that you travel to. And he really excelled in this genteel prose of you know that fish um, out of water living in a new um, uh, new surroundings completely because that's what he did total immersion he upsticks left his life as an advertising executive to literally retire in Provence and he was happy to play the role of the transplanted Englishman I mean he was very comfortable in that role I mean he would laugh be slightly bemused by the behaviour of the continentals and quite different from A.A. Gill actually because A.A. Gill was always the confident traveller. Yes. Peter Mayl didn't come across as being overly confident. Everything was a new discovery for him. And in many ways, he kind of channeled 
channeled what you and I would experience if we went to Provence for the first time. Yes, and um, he wasn't cynical. I think that's what it is. Correct. Right? Unlike um, a writer like A.A. Gill, um, he accepted all these um, differences in culture with amusement. And um, I think it's that gentility in him, that acceptance in him, that had made him so... I suppose, almost like an honorary Provencal man, right? Um, he was literally um, a Frenchman by the end of his journey. And in that sense, um, I think there was that this acceptance, it was um, this thorough living as a Provencal man that made him so well-followed and so well-liked, not only by the Brits, but also by the people that he lived amongst in Provence. Well, not just by the Brits, because God knows reading that book inspired you and me to make a trip, right? I mean, you've been to Provence, I've been to Provence, and it was really motivated by a year in Provence. Yes, and it's um, the way he, he has that ability of a good travel writer to really transport you somewhere else. Without... Too much poetry. There is just a sense of brightness and jocularity with his prose. I think that's what comes across more than anything else. He is he is very friendly in his writing. So it isn't something you need to sink your teeth into, but it's something you easily get lost in. Because he draws you in. Correct. His observations could be on something as, um, how shall I say it, something as... Banal as you know, birds coming feeding in his garden during spring, to um, market life in Provence and you know, the traders that he meet on a weekly basis, to festivals within the region. Um, so he he draws you in to want to experience something similar, right? Life in a beautiful corner of the world, a Correct. very beautiful part of the world. But also his fish out of water style is one that is fun as opposed to one that is challenging. You know the travel writers who take offense to mm. their surroundings, right? They travel to Mumbai and nothing is clean and they can't really handle it. And, you know, meanwhile, um, Peter Mayle kind of approaches it in a really fun way. He takes these challenges that new spaces offer with, with, a, real, with a real sense of, I guess, happiness and joy. I'm a huge fan of travel writing, Uma. Um, and there are some books which I literally could not finish. For example, the writings of Paul Theroux. Um, he wrote about travelling on a train, going through India. And I could not finish that book. You know, he was just so cynical and he just hated everything that he saw. And you know, you feel that there's, no, there's not going to be a moment of redemption. It made you not want to go there. And um, it made you not liking this you know, this protagonist even. And, and, and it's fine to be real and raw and all of that, right? But I think it's the tinge of cynicism that often gets in the way of enjoyment. Absolutely. And um, Peter Mill's almost completely devoid of that. Except... Except when it comes to his fellow British travellers. Correct. And that is something he takes great joy in doing, right? Just talking down the British traveller. Because the British traveller, in some ways, male's a pioneer, right? In the sense that he kind of inspired people to be different. But there still exists the British traveller who will travel the world and insist on having fish and chips wherever they go. Yeah, the prawns are funny because they've got heads on, you know, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, he's spoken about his own um, hardship of having guests dropping in throughout the whole summer season and there are some guests who are imposing on him and there are some guests who are the perfect guests in the sense that, you know, they leave for the day, they have their itinerary all written out, they want to explore, they want to discover and then there are guests who just say, oh, I'm going to be here for a couple of days and it turns out to be a week or two and they don't know where to stay and ends up staying at his and um, 
it's and he he views this with a bit of disdain, but also with a kind of a bit of a cocked eyebrow and kind of I suppose um, he's quite elegant about it, right? You know, um, and and he's quite forgiving about it, and he's quite bemused by it, and that what that's what makes him so um, easy to read and yeah. so enduring. As a writer, as his time in Provence went on, he too gained a certain amount of confidence in his voice because he was a local now. I mean, he had given up that life in London long ago, and it shows, right? I mean, even in this new collection, uh, which was published posthumously, he has a far more confident voice, and he sounds like a seasoned local. And you know, that means he has the cred to talk about his British travellers in that way. Um, It's immediately believable. Of course, and with that comes the suggestions. So if you ever want to visit the region, he comes up with a few wonderful suggestions in terms of cafes to go to, you know, um, what, which villages to actually visit, uh, things that you should be looking out for. So his books have really served as a wonderful guide to the region, whether it was um, by accident or whether it was on purpose. It's something that you really should, you know, consider reading even if you don't want to travel to Provence, just to kind of escape from your everyday hustle. So let's talk about this particular book, right? My 25 Years in Provence, Reflections on Then and Now. I'm going to ask you what you thought, but before I do that, I initially felt that these collections of essays and thoughts, while delightful because it is in that Peter Mail style, felt a little scattershot. It felt like a bunch of editors and People and publishers got together and went, oh, he's just passed away. Let's string together what we can find into a sort of collection. It's a bit of the greatest hits, isn't it? Huh. It feels a little, it feels coherent because I guess he's been there long enough so that you can compile enough writings out of notebooks to make it feel like a singular narrative. Mm -hmm. But for the most part... There are bits of journalism, there are reflections, there are bits... On truffle hunting. Featuring Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe when they went to shoot a good year in the town. Yeah, it just feels a little all over the place and some of it feels like it was lifted straight from notebooks with very little editing. I wouldn't say it's his best, you know. Um, And if you are a fan of his writing, I wouldn't necessarily go for this, even though it's meant to be like a posthumous greatest hits of all the things that you know that he's kind of experienced as someone who is living um, in that region I mean to me A Year in Provence is still the definitive correct um, uh, piece of writing that he's come up with there is a story of um, there is a journey from when he first started um, living in Provence you know it started off with the lines uh, with the line uh, the year started with lunch and we know that's a wonderful line to start with right and um, as someone who enjoys food personally I think his book his writings always be interspersed with um, uh, writings of you know enjoying lunches and food and and uh, the Provencal cuisine and you know uh, the cafe scenes within the region. This book it kind of begins before a year mm-hmm. in him explaining why Jenny and himself decided to make this trip to ditch London and try life out in France. Right, it starts with that and then it kind of moves along in Is a it, weird mm-hmm. chronological pace. Because there are moments where you can't tell when in his stay yes. that particular scene takes place. The scenes themselves are fine. They're great. They're Peter Mail. They're delightful. They're quaint. They're enjoyable. All of that's there. It's just that 
It's very episodic. I huh, think, it lacks right? a little bit of structure and a bit of depth as well. I think um, correct. Uh, it, it didn't really get under my skin as how it did for his other other previous writings, where I literally could not put the book down because I want to you know find out what happens next. In this case, it was a bit of like okay, I can put it away and come back to it a week later. So, I mean, there were cute moments, like mm-hmm. you know, we mentioned about the Ridley Scott. Russell Crowe thing when Hollywood came to shoot. I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, those are stories I'd never heard before. I was a huge uh, fan of that movie. I really enjoyed that film. Even though I'm not a fan of Russell Crowe. And I think he was slightly miscast, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Um, I just rewatched that movie. Obviously, A Good Year was a book that he himself wrote. That's right. Wrote, and I think he was behind the screenplay itself as well. And... Um, and it's nice to know the backstory to that, I suppose. You know, how it came to be Marion Cotillard, how she was also casted for that movie, where they shot the movie. I think if you are a fan of those kind of things, you know, of behind the scenes, those extras in the DVDs, if you're always clicking and watching that, then that's perfect. Correct. There's a cute little moment uh, when he finds out about becoming a legionnaire. Yes. And, you know, he talks about how he lets out a little yelp uh, after reading the newspaper. And I think it's a waiter or maitre d' who runs up to him thinking, he needs medical attention. <laughs> and, you know, there are all these cute moments as well. But you're right. They feel almost too anecdotal and disjointed. Yes. You know, as though it's almost a collection of little newspaper um, columns that, you know, one has written over the course of years um, that he was there. But, you know, I guess for some for someone who is a fan of his writing, um, it's a completist move to have this novel as well. You know, you got to have this bit with the photos of him, you know, and birds in the in his backyard, that kind of thing. It's it's kind of cute to really see the pictures um, of how he lived in Provence, as opposed to the little sketches that he had in his earlier books. It's it's um I think it's a it's a worthy addition nonetheless if you are a fan of that genre. And he really was responsible, I believe, to spawn this kind of writing. He I wasn't a right. pioneer. Let's, let's, let's put it out there. But there were so many other writers who were, especially British writers, who were writing this similar fish out of water, whether you are, whether the location was different, you know, whether it was Provence or Tuscany or, you know, Morocco, you know, it's all this kind of fish out of water experiencing the bucolic lifestyle in a sunny part of Europe. And you know what made this, I guess, Peter Mail-inspired writers stand apart was that they would all have that similar disdain for British travellers. <laughs> and I think, you know, then you knew, oh, okay, this is where it's coming from, right? You've read Peter Mail and you want to be like him and you want to be different and encourage people to be different. And wanting to be like him, I think uh, Manerab, you know, which is where he had based himself for many, many years when he was living in Provence, um, became a bit of a tourist attraction. It did. Right? That's Peter Mill's home. You would walk around and you would see people clutching copies of his book as they were walking around the town, right? That became a very weird and popular thing to do. It's similar to encountering, you know, tourists in certain part of Europe or whatever other part of cities and you're all holding a lonely planet guide just like you. And <laughs> here you are thinking that you're different from everyone else. You know, nope. I've got the insider's guide, but every nope. other person is told totally the same thing, Everyone has the right? insider's guide. <laughs> right? You know what the big biggest problem for me reading all of these sorts of novels and books are it is that there are certain parts of the world where I go to and I want to do the same thing and I have such great admiration for people who can do it. I, I, I don't know how to ditch a life and just move somewhere you fall in love with. It feels like such... On, on the one hand, it feels almost like an irresponsible thing to do, but at the same time, there is this romantic notion behind uprooting 
and going somewhere new and experiencing a new world and sitting there for a year and writing a book it's just oh. because he makes it sound so easy it's not right it's not it's <laughs> upheaval it's you know learning a new language it's gaining the trust of locals you know to make sure that you can actually make your life livable it's not but he makes it sound so easy and i believe some people attribute him to the rising prices of properties oh, wow, in the really? south of france wow. because everyone wanted a slice of that everyone wanted to retire in the south of france because it's an idyllic life it is. or it feels like it, it anyway it feels like it you know the sun's always shining even when the depths of winter and he never yeah exactly What was it? Three uh, hundred days a year. Yes. It's supposed to have sunshine. Apart from the mistral, you know that you know ruins your day at the beach once in a while. But otherwise, hey, who would want that slice? And he never broke form in all of those years. He never became jaded or bitter with yes. the place, and that's what's in, that's what's amazing, right? He's never said, "I've had it. I've had enough. I've had enough of these Frenchies. I've had enough of like you know the mistral ruining my days when I thought it's going to be nice and sunny." He's never from someone who was actually. An outright city slicker. Correct. Right. Both Live he and his wife. For him and his wife to completely uproot and and just um, retire quietly in the south of France is is admirable. For me, that is a sign of someone who has truly found their place. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of happiness to last until you're seventy eight years old, uh, to be still writing about it at that age with the same kind of love and passion that you did when you wrote your first book decades ago, that means you found your place. That means you found your calling. You found your place. You found that moment, that utopia. It's his nirvana. That's exactly. what we're peering into, exactly, right? right? It's where you want to be when you are seventy-eight. Um, and what? tonight, when I have to drive home in the KL traffic and want to shoot myself in the head, <gasps> I will remember this. You'll remember this. You will leave through his books and then think, you know, I could have that too. But one thing I didn't want to ask you, Uma. Um, one thing that I do like to do when mm. I am traveling is to read some local literature or more of like, you know, books that is... Um, uh, in translation, obviously. Sensi- yeah. <laughs> or more of, of like books that's sensitive to the location. You right, know? of course. Do you do that? Do you read like Death in Venice when you're going to Venice or Orhan Pamuk when you're going to Istanbul, that kind of thing? Maybe not so heavy. What I what, <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, what I do like to do, and yes, I agree, I do that as well. Um, also, when it comes to traveling around cities, I like reading stuff like this as opposed to a Lonely Planet guide. Mm-hmm. I like the work of travel writers um, telling me which cafes they go to and what food they eat. The narrative style appeals to me a little more, right, right. than just the listicle in some travel guide. As for fiction... I enjoy reading murder mysteries set in cities. Oh, so wow. I spent a month in Italy a few years ago and it was in As Florence. <laughs> Florence in Tuscany. Um, and, and I like reading murder mysteries because I find that the murder mystery books kind of take you into the alleyways and the seedy underbellies and all of that stuff, That's right? your kind of thing. That's well, your it's not like I go there <laughs> and it's not like we'd ever go there as tourists. And so I always find it's an interesting insight into the city, which is right. kind of cool because it's something you... Well, hopefully, never see. Right, right. And um, in in these days of Instagram and social media and taking pictures, that you know, the most um, in the most creative way possible, this seems real. This seems like you know, you just really living in the moment, enjoying the moment, as opposed to documenting things in a visual way and showing it to the rest of the world. You know, this is you really trying to live life as a local. You know, transporting yourself when you are away. There is an American travel guide writer. I think it's Rick Steves is his name. And he's a very famous uh, American continental expert, right? So he will write about European cities. And of course, 
in the modern era, he's got apps with audio guides, right? And that was a really funny experience for me in Florence because um, I had the audio guide and I was listening to it with my headphones on my iPhone. And he'll tell you, oh, you know, walk around the church in a counterclockwise uh, manner and stop at this sculpture and he'll explain the sculpture for you. And then I look around and I see like three other people <laughs> standing outside the same sculpture. And we all give ourselves this knowing like wink that uh, Rick Steves, Rick Steves, Rick Steves. <gasps> it was funny. You, I mean, do you think though that kind of detracts from the actual experience of being in the moment, listening to the actual streetscapes, the actual street sounds. No, absolutely. But I think for me, I like to do that within the first few days when I'm there because that's the only sense that I get of history and architecture and all of that stuff. I need someone to explain it to right. me. Uh, if not, I'm just looking at it going, yes, that's pretty. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to know that it was made 400 years ago by this artist for this person on commission. I like all of that stuff. So usually I get that done and dusted within the first two days, and then I just kind of walk around and explore. It does add to the experience. It makes it a bit it more does. richer, right? It does. And you, there's a sense of appreciation at the same time. But the reason I brought it up, of course, was in the age of Instagram and all of that stuff, it feels like no experience is unique. And so um, that's why I keep going back to these sorts of books, because I get the individual experience from a writer, from a person who has an eye and ear for dialogue and people and place and I think that's nice that for me adds a certain perspective to where I am well even if this writing uh, you know this kind of writing um, doesn't want doesn't make you want to go to the location that they're talking about that they're writing about I think it kind of allows a sense of escape from your day to day right you know I may be in KL and the rain is beating down but I'm kind of hunkered down with my book on rural Provence and it transports me and that is um, that is something worth you know to talk about that is something that's worth something today you know rather than just mindlessly going through images on Instagram to be truly transported by words that is really the essence of literature and the magic of literature to me absolutely it's a bit of a depressing escape because you know, then you'd go online and you look for plane ticket prices and you're like, oh, Airbnb, <laughs> when can I go? When can I get leave? I mean, that's what happens whenever I read a moving piece of writing about another place. Um, I think there was a book a while ago. Uh, I think it was called The Jinn's House, if I'm not mistaken. It was about Morocco and Casablanca. And it's one of my favorite pieces of travel writing, yet again, about a writer who decides to uproot his entire family to Casablanca and Morocco. And, and he runs into so much trouble because he moves into this old house, which already has servants and people who run the house and all of that stuff. And, and you know, initially, they don't like this out, outsider moving into their house and they try and make life difficult for him and tell him stories about jinns and, you know, and all of this stuff. And it was a wonderful piece. And he spends a year in Morocco and Casablanca. And it was only after reading that book that I actually was filled with a need to go there. I still haven't been. And every now and again, I will look at plane ticket prices and accommodation and all of that stuff because that's one part of the world I've never explored. But in some ways, Uma, um, you don't have to. You've been I know. transported. You know? I feel like the real life experience might be so disappointing yeah, after that. I think so. <laughs> That you know that it can't it can't live up to the words that you've read on the page, yeah. right? and it's a personal pe person's experience. But um, 
that's the reason why these books are actually published. You know, these experiences are worth reliving for everyone else. So, Azra, I guess if we're going to recommend a read for someone who's never read any Peter Mail, it would have to be A Year in Provence, right? Definitely. Um, because it documents, no, it's the beginning of his journey, right? And he draws you in from there. That was the first of his books that I read. And I went on to buy another five of his books, you know? And some of them were actually um, centering on the food of Provence and so on and so forth. But a year in Provence, it has a bit of a drama because, you know, you're moving to somewhere new and getting used to the locals. It's got sketches of his time there that was actually um, drawn by him himself. Uh, that would be a good place to start. Azura Rahman, always a pleasure having you on Bookmark. Thank, Thank you very much. Merci. <laughs> uh, Peter Mail's books can be found at all good bookshops. We strongly recommend them. You should go check them out. Start with A Year in Provence and then make your way through all of his other writings. You will not be disappointed. You're listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.